They tried to push him off the cliff. We never intended for that to happen. I mean, in those days, yeah, Jesus was annoying to us, but we didn't mean that they should turn him into a human flight experiment. You see, he was our brother. He was a part of the family. He was our big brother who had suddenly up and left. You see, after father passed away, Jesus took over the carpentry business, and people loved his work all over the region. He would go, and he would build things, and people would say, oh, it's just so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And then all of a sudden, he was gone. And they didn't think our stuff was so great. So we just kind of had this thing, but still, he was family. And then he came home to Nazareth. I guess it just goes to show you, you really can't go home again. Not in the same way you were before, even though everybody expects you to be the same way you were before. You see, the family had had this growing embarrassment with Jesus as the Nazareth old rumor mill had started rising up about what he was doing and what he was saying and what he was claiming and all these miracles and things, these stories coming out of the Galilee. And so one day we just all went over there and tried to grab him and bring him home and talk some sense into him. It was in North Shore of Galilee in this little town called Capernaum where there was this crowd just packed around this house and you couldn't get into the place. It was so, he was so popular by that time that it was just impossible to get near him. In fact, we saw some uh, men go up the steps uh, around the back of the house and apparently they dug a hole in the roof and let down their friend on a stretcher, a, a paralyzed man who couldn't walk and everybody knew he couldn't walk and then all of a sudden the guy comes walking out the door. And at that point, it was impossible to get to him, so we just went home. But then a, a year or two later, he, Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And, and as he's um, speaking in there, what really set this off is he was speaking at the, at the synagogue. They invited him in there. And, and uh, as he's teaching, people begin to say things like, who is this? Isn't this really little Jesus that we saw playing with our kids and so forth? Why is he saying these wise things like he's, like he's some great teacher or something? What, what is all of this? And we've heard about the miracles and so forth and so on. And, and, and then they said something that really kind of fried me. They said, isn't this just Mary's son? You see, what they were doing is they were taking Mary's name rather than our late father's name, even though what they weren't saying, they were saying that Jesus was less because he's just Mary's son now. And she's my mom. That really burned my uh, brothers and I's chaps. And, and we almost punched a guy in the face for it. But you know, what really set them off was when Jesus opened up the uh, scriptures to read. And, and, and it was from Isaiah 61 and 58, the Messianic texts. And he read them, and then he handed the scroll back to the attendant, and he stood up, and he said, Today, before your very eyes, those scriptures are fulfilled, to which my brother my little brother put his face palm on his face. And my sister's got these big saucer eyes like, oh, did I just hear that? And our mom 
whispered loud enough for the entire synagogue to hear, James, he's still your brother. Do something. But just about the time I thought, well, I'm going to scoot over there and just kind of usher him out and say, come on, bro, let's go, let's go. He, he, he said something else. He said, you people don't understand what I just said because you're so unyielding and you're so stuck in your ways that you'll never see the miracle of God in front of you. To which they didn't like that very well. They picked up, all the men stood up, gathered around Jesus and took him off to the precipice hill to throw him off. And what was weird was Jesus wasn't fighting it. He was just walking with them. It was almost as if he knew what was coming and, and had a plan or something because they got him up to the very edge of the cliff because that's what you do for prophets who have committed heresy. You, throw, you kill them. So that's what they were trying to do. Even though this was just little old Nazareth and they really didn't have much reputation to stand on. But as, as he got to the edge of the cliff, all of a sudden, he just walks through the crowd and down the hill and nobody laid a hand on him. It was kind of miraculous, really. And all these years later, what's interesting is, I now am one of his most famous followers. I'm an ardent follower of his. In fact, you could say that I am not only famous, I am the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And I have to say that today, there are many people here in Jerusalem and many people back home that would want me dead, just like Jesus. It, but the thing is, you know, what caused me to change my mind and caused me to become a follower of my brother and to worship him was not the miracle on Precipice Hill. That was significant enough, but it was another miracle that was even greater. But that's for another time. The point right now is that if you were to tell me back then, just a few years ago, that I would be following Jesus and standing up for him and risking my life for him as the Messiah, the Son of God, <laughs> well, I would have said you'd broken into the uh, winery at Cana that has the best and strongest wine in the region. <laughs> but the reality is, our family was simply trying to rescue our family. We were just trying to capture Jesus and to pull him back a bit and, and because it was causing problems in our family. But now I have to say that for the sake of our family and for the sake of your family and for the sake of every family on the planet, thank God that we couldn't do it because that changed everything. Now, that's not exactly what Mark says and the story, as you'll see today, that we're going to talk about. But it is, besides what people are thinking, of course, we can't know that. It's very dangerous to apply psychology to the Scripture. But besides that, all that kind of structure's in there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is the only one that tells us that they took him up onto Precipice Hill to try and shove him off. Luke's the only one that tells us that what sort of really set them off was in the synagogue when he read the scripture and claimed it for himself, the Messiah texts. But that, if you go to the region of, of Nazareth today, uh, it, it, you, you can kind of see it. I, I have friends that live in Nazareth. Maybe you didn't know this. this is a little interesting factoid. Nazareth is the largest city up north. It's about 25 uh, miles uh, west of Galilee. It's the largest Arab city within 
the uh, region of, uh, that is Israel proper. In other words, all the, most of the Arabs who live in Nazareth, it's an Arab uh, majority city, most of the Arabs that live there are in fact Israeli citizens. I don't know if you knew that. Israel, within the borders of Israel, they have voting Israeli citizens, uh, about two million that are, are, are Arabs, and many, many, many of them live in, uh, in Nazareth today. But back then, Nazareth wasn't all that much. It was not anything to, to stand on. Uh, we've been up on Precipice Hill. We're not sure if that's the hill, of course, that they tried to throw them off, but it's a big hill in the middle of Nazareth that, that uh, they call it Precipice Hill. And there's a huge cliff. I remember two years ago when we went uh, with uh, our Israel group, our, our uh, guide, Saeed Mariba, who takes us uh, around and does, he's, he's very knowledgeable. And he took us up there and he gathered us around. It was an extremely windy day. You could hardly hear his voice. So he said, get close, get close, get close, away from the cliff, away from the cliff, get close. And, and it's just blowing, blowing, blowing. He says, now, listen to me. See, look over there to the west. That's the Jezreel Valley. And on the other side of the Jezreel Valley is Megiddo as in Armageddon. So on this windy day, please do not get too close to the cliff or you'll be blown into Armageddon. So, I mean, that, that kind of gives you the picture of where the place is and, and what the topography was. So it wasn't that hard to find a place to throw off a heretical prophet. But the thing is, is what we discover here is something about familiarity. Familiarity can be a really good thing. It can be a bad thing. I mean, think of it this way. When you first became a Christian, you're on fire for Jesus. You're really lit up for him. And as you get more familiar with him or as you get more familiar with the scriptures, as you kind of learn, it's sort of like, yeah, I've read that before. Yeah, I've heard that before. What else you got, right? So familiarity can kind of breed that kind of thing. Or, or you could put it this way. When, G, when it comes to Jesus, just like any relationship, familiarity can be a blessing or a curse, it can be a help or a trap. Let me, let me show you what I mean from uh, this story in the book of Mark, starting at verse 1 of chapter 6. We're going to look at just the first six verses today of Mark chapter 6 in our discovery of who Jesus is and what difference that makes in our lives. Verse 1 says this, Jesus left there, that is, the there is Capernaum, the north shore of Galilee, and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. So the disciples go along. This hometown business is Nazareth. It's Nazareth. It, it's, it's going home to people who knew you growing up and so forth and so on, right? It, it's, it's that kind of thing. And um, so Jesus goes home to Nazareth, which was not that big a deal, really. Being from Nazareth was not a good thing on your resume, in other words. It, it was... It was uh, you know, Josephus doesn't mention it, the, his, the Jewish historian from a number of years later. The Old Testament never mentions Nazareth. The rabbis and the Mishnah and stuff writing during the time of Jesus and before never mentioned Nazareth. Nobody cared about Nazareth because it was just a dinky, silly little town. In fact, in uh, very real terms, today the archaeological evidence at Nazareth is it wasn't all that big a deal. It was just a little Jewish settlement among a whole bunch of uh, Gentile or Greek and Roman settlers. In fact, James Edwards, who's a Mark expert that we've been using and looking at, he, he says this about the archaeological excavations. He says, the archaeological excavations beneath the imposing churches of, 
Annunciation and St. Joseph in Nazareth. Now, I just got to stop there. The, the, the Annunciation Church is this giant Catholic church built over a grotto where um, Mary was supposed to have heard from Gabriel, the angel, that she was going to be uh, the mother of the Son of God. Remember that? So it's, it's built over that grotto. You can actually walk in front of the grotto. I'm a little suspicious because the stones look like they were put there in the early 2000s. But... What's interesting is there's this giant church over the top. And, and the St. Joseph Church, by the way, it's very much a lot smaller, but that's another matter. Uh, but I, I've gone outside every time I've been there, and I've tried to take pictures so I could show you, like when we come to a message like this about what Nazareth looks like and, and the sort of the, the outlay of the, the, the streets and the, you know, the houses. And, it, and you can look through this plexiglass out back underneath the church. But if I showed you, honestly, it just looks like stone and dirt. All right, just a bunch of rocks and dirt. It, it, it doesn't look like much, which as Edward says here, when you dig it up, it just doesn't look like much because it wasn't much. And Nazareth have uncovered a series of grottos that date back to the time of Jesus, the resultant picture of an obscure hamlet of earthen dwellings chopped into 60 acres of rocky hillside with a total population of 500 at most. So it wasn't that, but it was enough for Jesus to have neighbors and people who knew him and people who thought they were familiar with him. But in the greater region, in all of Palestine and, and, and Judea, even as far as Judea, people would know about Nazareth and they'd say, they're here about Nazareth. They'd say, Nazareth? What's the big deal about that? In fact, in a famous story in our Bibles, John, who was there this day, uh, was one who uh, reported about one of the early disciples, a guy named Philip, one of the 12. He runs off to find his friend Nathaniel, and here's what Nathaniel says. Philip ran, found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about the prophets also, whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel asked. I think it was pretty much like that. And, I, and this isn't in the text, but I'm going to add the word just to the next sentence. Just come and see, said Philip. Because, you know, just, okay, put that out of your mind. Just come. Don't let Nazareth stop you. Why? Because it was so, you know, so Nazareth. It was so plain, you know. Come and see. I found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Hepner. If you're from Hepner, nothing wrong with Hepner. The reality is, Jesus is from this little dinky town, so everybody just sort of writes him off. You see, what you're seeing here is that familiarity can fuel disdain, even of the most sacred things, if we're not careful. And it's especially true today. This isn't any different uh, today than it was then, because we're all about celebrity culture. We're all about the American dream. We're all about working hard, which is good. And if you work hard and ambitious, bingo, bango, it's, it's done. You're, you're in. We even have certain theology that have crept into the church that's, this isn't, it's, it's called the gospel, but it's not really a gospel. It's a different dark gospel. It's called the health and wealth doctrine. That somehow, if you just believe in Jesus, all this stuff's going to come your way. I remember the first time I ran into that. I was in Seattle as a pastor, and a woman came to our church, and she was pretty new, and she was, you know, she was just on edge all the time. She, she, many times when I spoke to her, she was just weeping 
Because just a month before she lost her mom to cancer, who she loved and loved and loved, and what had happened is a a well-known pastor from South Seattle in the area, he was on TV and everything else, at the church that they had been going to, this large mega church, came into the room and told the family, you need to get out of here because your mom's dying because you don't have enough faith. And then she died before they got back in the room. And so... (laughs) It, it can have vicious, vicious consequences. It's this, this sort of celebrity culture, you know? And especially when you come to Jesus, who, what does he say? He says, if you want to be first, you got to be last. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Paul gets really blunt about it. Paul the Apostle, he just flat out says, look, if you were going to follow Jesus, you need to acknowledge the fact that you're his slave, that you've enlisted into servitude, that's, 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 that's humble, that's lowly, that's, that God can do amazing and sacred and wondrous things through the lowly, and that seems to be the message of Jesus' entire life. And yet he's from Nazareth, and these very people who should have known better about the lowliness and, you know, lesserness of their lives should have figured this out, they reject him. Because look what happens next. Look where he goes, it just kind of sort of devolves from here in verse 2. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So they were amazed at first. Watch these uh, questions now. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he has been given him? What are these uh, remarkable miracles he is performing? So they asked the first three questions about Jesus' ministry, and they, they sort of devolve. I mean, you can almost see themselves talking themselves out of this. You know, I mean, and the, the, the Nazarene people of all people should kind of see things differently. I mean, have you, have you noticed in pattern, we do this in our families, we do this with our spouses, it's sort of human nature. You take, the, you take the positives and you turn them into neutrals, you take the neutrals and you turn them into negatives, and you take the negatives and you turn them into disdain. I mean, that's kind of what's happening here, right? Don't you? I mean, oh yeah, you're not all that. You're, you're, you're just... You know, where is this coming from, really, is what they're saying. How can this be? And yet, these very Nazareth people really don't have a leg to stand on because they're not all that themselves. And that's part of being a Jesus follower, too, is realizing I'm not all that without Jesus. I'm not, I'm not sharing with you my faith and my faith in God because I'm all that. No, it's because I'm not that he had to come to, and save me. That's... That's where these people are not at the moment. But what we're seeing here is the fact that familiarity can make you think something that my mother warned me about all the time. Familiarity can make you feel comfortable acting like you're too big for your britches. Why? Because she was afraid I would grow up and be a big shot. So she reminded me (laughs) over and over again, and that was a good reminder because, you know, what that does is it says, yeah, but who really is the big shot in my life? Who really does give me a leg to stand on? And they go on with their questions. Look at the second half of uh, verse 3. Isn't this Mary's son, uh, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? 
So you, you begin to see who Jesus' family is. I don't know if you knew this. Jesus had more brothers and sisters, half-brothers and half-sisters because of the virgin birth and so forth and so on. That's what Christians believe. Uh, but we don't have time to get into that. But the fact is, is there were brothers that he grew up with. He apparently was the eldest, probably took over his father's carpentry business after Joseph had died because he's apparently gone by this time. And, and so these are his brothers and sisters around here. He said, well, look, these people are... are are, are here. I mean, you know, the, he's not all that. He's, he, and when they say, isn't he a carpenter? They're not saying he works with his hands. No, working with your hands in the Jewish world was a big honor. It was a big deal. But what they're saying is, is he's not any better than we are. We do the same thing. That's how the questions have begun to devolve, okay? It's like, you know, you're not that special. You're not that significant. I mean, you see a relational pattern here again. Have you ever noticed, like if you've ever said this, and maybe I'm just talking out of my experience, my wife, my husband, oh, they never listen to me. But if somebody else tells them, if one of their friends, oh, they automatically go for it. Do you ever see that in your family kind of thing? I mean, it's just human nature, isn't it? To kind of, yeah, but we grew up to, yeah, come on. You know, are your brothers and sisters, you know, how many times have you gone home at 30 and 40 and maybe 50 years old and you're still the annoying little brother? <laughs> you're still the one whom say, people say, oh, you're so gross. You know I mean, that kind of thing? You're still labeled with the nickname trouble. <laughs> I knew a woman one time, no joke. Can't remember who it is, so if it's you, just look straight ahead. <laughs> who at 40 and 50 years old was still called by the childhood nickname that her, kid, her parents gave her. The name was Scoot. The reason is, is because she scooted on her diaper instead of stood up before she crawled, and, or before she stood up and walked instead of crawling. So she was called Scoots all her life. And at 40, 50, she's still called Scoots. I mean, you, you never can break out, you know. You're not going to ever. See, what, what human nature is, is to look at somebody, and, and in this case, this is what they're doing, is to look at somebody and say, I'm the expert on you. You know, if you get to a certain level of familiarity and that familiarity goes to the dark side, then you say, I, I, I know exactly who you are. You'll never be different. That's exactly who you are. And you see, that's part of the pattern. It's a it's a corollary to the pattern of you get to know Jesus more and more. You get to know the scriptures more and more. The umpteenth time you've heard a sermon on that text. The umpteenth time you've read that text. And it's like, yeah, but I've been here so many times before. We don't understand that you can be there over a lifetime again and again and again. Human nature is to not realize that over, this is why we need the Holy Spirit, that you can hear the same text over and over again and get something new out of it. And that God can speak to you in a different way out of it. Not reinterpreting it, changing the interpretation of what I mean, no. But the application can, he can, the Spirit can say, see, you didn't see that word last time, did you? That's what you need to know. But if we're stuck in this sort of familiarity limbo land, that doesn't happen. You see, Jesus' brothers here are very interesting when you look at it. You got James and Judas and Joseph. We don't ever hear about Joseph again. Simon, uh, not Simon Peter, but the, Simon was a common name. But, but look at this. 
you, you, you see these guys here not believing in him. But if you look at the pattern over the New Testament, his family actually winds up believing in him and actually become, becomes leaders and becomes uh, leaders who give a lot, like their lives, for Jesus. Uh, for example, just follow these three verses through the New Testament. In John chapter 7, beginning at verse 3, it says, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. Are they looking at him and saying, hey, you know what? We don't believe in you, but we'd, you know, we'd love to have you be safe. We'd love to have you kind of dial it back and, and protect yourself a little bit. I don't know. I think this indicates that they did have some affection for him, but they still just couldn't buy it. Verse 4, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For they, even his own brothers did not believe him. But then this little thing called the resurrection happens. And Jesus ascends into heaven. And the first picture we see of the early church in the book of Acts, they're in an upper room, the upper room probably, praying together, 120 of them. And look who's there in Acts chapter 1, 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They'd come to follow Jesus and to be devoted to him. Not only that, Decades later, when he's writing the letter to the Corinthians, Paul's describing for uh, us the fact that, you know what? He has every right to be married, although he's chosen not to for the sake of ministry. But he has every right to because other apostles and even Jesus' brothers are doing it, have gotten married, and they're traveling with their spouses around the Mediterranean sharing the gospel. Look what he says. Don't we have the right to take believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, which Cephas is another name for, for Peter? So they actually, in the end, became ardent, deep Jesus followers. What this indicates is, is that oftentimes we need a watershed moment to change our view of those we are most familiar with both in our relationships and those relational patterns we have with each other, do tend to be the way we treat Jesus, by the way, and vice versa. But, but, but here's the thing. Oftentimes, those water, you need a watershed moment to change it. And, and the, the reality is, is that, you know, I've asked this question before. I, I've s said this before. Um, but just it, the, the text demands that we ask the question again. Think, if you've got a brother, think about that brother. If you've got a sister, uh, maybe think about the sister, if that's a better analogy. If you've got some friend in high school that you still kind of stay in touch with, you did all kinds of mischief with, think of that person. And then ask yourself, what would it take for you to bow down and worship that brother, sister, or friend? It would take a watershed miracle of resurrection proportions in my world right? That's the watershed thing. That's the thing we're supposed to understand as you read through the New Testament and the pattern, that you see that James, the, the oldest besides Jesus, the second brother, but the oldest in this text, he, he's, he becomes the leader of the church, becomes the first martyr in the church. Judas, in all likelihood, is Jude, who wrote the little one-page letter that's in the New Testament called Jude, because in the first sentence of that, he says, I am Jude, the brother of James, Allah, not James and John, but James, the brother of Jesus. So I'm that guy. 
And I have decided that I'm going to follow Jesus. I've decided that he's worth my life. And boy, does, I got to tell you, Jude is a one-page letter, but boy, does he pack a punch. He just lays it on the line. And, and that is a vast change. I wonder, and that can't happen without some watershed moment, which is why we need the Holy Spirit to say, okay, you need to think about this. Okay, you need to open your heart to this. I mean, mo- many of us who've become Christians, it's like we weren't expecting it. We weren't expecting to even be open to the idea. And all of a sudden, we're sitting in church or reading the Bible or all of a sudden, bing. It's because there's a presence of God shows up in a watershed kind of way for us. But look at what happens with these people. It says, they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, all those villages he'd worked in. Apparently they received him. What's interesting here is this word offense. You know, the word literally means scandal. It's the Greek word scandalon we get the word scandal from. It, it, a, a, a strong uh, candidate for translation other than offense is the word stumbling block. That, that, that was a common phrase in Jewish circles in these times. A stumbling block that, that um, you know, they, were, they, were, they were stumbling over him. And the reality is, is that's why we need familiarity that is spirit-inspired not familiarity that is, you know, denigrating from a I know you, I'm the expert kind of way. The reason we need it is because the fact is that if you follow Jesus very long now, if you are a Jesus follower, you know that there are stumbling blocks, even for Christians. I had a call on Wednesday. We were out for a little birthday celebration for a family birthday, so I let it ring through from a dear friend of mine from back east in Illinois. He teaches out here. Uh, and a few minutes later, I got a text, and I looked at this, like, oh, I gotta go out and call. What, I, what, what the text said and what we talked about on the phone was that a, a, a close associate of him, his, his administrator for his work at uh, Western Seminary here, had uh, been working out. This is a guy that my friend had just talked to the days before, and they were making future plans, and all of a sudden, and he just dropped out at the gym. Wasn't that old, but he's a person who's sort of like uh, what we're seeing in Jesus here. He's lowly, and he's humble. He, he wasn't, you know, I'm not, I don't want to oversell this, but he was a person you wouldn't know his name, so I'm not even going to mention his name, but he's a person who has had a deep effect in his church. He's been an elder there. He's been a teacher there. Uh, he, he, he's been an uh, administrator at the seminary and helped all kinds of people's lives be touched. And I think when he got uh, before the Lord, they said, look at all you did. He, he had no idea because it was just sort of behind the scenes kind of guy. The guy that supports other things. And I remember when I heard, the, talked to my friend on the phone out there on the sidewalk, I was going, that thought came to my mind again. I didn't say it to him because I just didn't think it was appropriate, but maybe you've had this thought. This is pastor true confession time. When I've heard of friends that have been diagnosed with horrible cancers or friends who have dropped dead, and I've had a few of them, I remember going on my knees and just saying, God, what kind of good could ever come out of this? What is going on? You ever done that? 
push back that hard? That's the kind of offense that these people were experiencing, although for lesser reasons. That's the stumbling block. And if you don't have a strong faith, if you expect to understand everything, and not that you're ever going to have to believe in spite of the fact that you don't understand something, you're going to have a stumbling block. And that's the kind of offense that, 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 that is, is here. And then Jesus pulls out this thing about familiarity and how it can get in the way of that kind of faith. He pulls out a statement that was common knowledge. This is common wisdom. This isn't from the Old Testament. It's, it's a version of something we say today that is millennia old. You ever uh, use the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Yeah, that was, you know who said that? That was a guy named Aesop. Aesop, the, the fable guy, Aesop's fables, he, that, that came into being about 600 years before Jesus came along. And by the time Jesus is teaching, uh, the Greeks had a version of it, the Romans had a version of it, the Hebrews have a version of it, everybody had a version of it. And Jesus is quoting the Hebrew version. A prophet is not, uh, is not without honor except in his hometown. So there's sort of a double negative there. That's why the translators have a hard time making a good sentence out of it. But it's, it's the idea that, you know, you can't really go home again kind of thing. By the way, Mark Twain used this phrase too about 100 years ago. He said, yeah, familiarity breeds contempt. It also breeds children, <laughs> which, <laughs> which has nothing to do with this text, but I thought you want to know that. <laughs> but this scandalon thing, it breeds contempt. Familiarity, the wrong kind, I mean the kind that is so often just kind of natural course of things, the natural powers, the, the human sort of, there's really nothing more going on in this world than this, that kind of thing, that kind of familiarity, that can take you down to a dark, dark place. But there's a wondrous possibility here though. You see, what's, what, what's, we need to realize is we all tell ourselves a story. We all believe in a story. We all make certain assumptions. We all have a story of what life is really about. And it depends on whether or not you're soaking your head in Jesus' story of what life's really about. If you're breathing in the scriptures rather than breathing everything that comes down the cultural pike, that's the dependent on whether or not the kind of familiarity you have with him is going to be life-changing or not whether it's going to be passionate and invigorating and life-giving or not, or if the spark's going to go out. You see, a lot of people live by the story their professor told them in college because that was their defining moment in life. A lot of other people, they live by the story their mother told them, which, generally speaking, turns out to be a pretty good thing as much as wisdom as she's got. But if you want to have Jesus' story of the kingdom of God that changes your life and changes the world and changes, then you got to be in this story. you got to have that one breathed in. That's the work of the Spirit. And here's the wondrous thing. This is the promise in this text with regard to how familiar. Because Jesus doesn't say, push away, push away, push away. That's our pattern too. Oh, I don't want to get that familiar with it. Push away. Some of us do that with our spouses. Maybe you're doing it now. Don't look at them. I mean, just kind of push away the relationships. And then we try to do that with God. That, that's not, we're just, that's, that's the recipe for utter loneliness in this world. 
But look at what Mark adds. This is very, this is very interesting because he's the only one that says this. Jesus was not able to do any miracles. Matthew says he was not able to do many miracles. That's what Luke says too. Because Mark adds, except for laying on hands and healing a few sick people, <laughs> if anybody else ever did that at any time in history, we would say, look at that. And I wasn't able to do a very miracle, you know? What does that say? It says there's the spark of passion and hope in this. There's the spark of, you know, whether you're dead in your sin as a non-believer, as the scriptures calls it. I'm not saying that. The scripture says that. Whether you're dead in sin or you're dead in your faith. As a Christian who's been a Christian too long and you've fallen into the danger of the dark side of familiarity. Whether you're dead in sin or dead in faith, Jesus offers proof of life in a spark. Spark that the Holy Spirit can blow because the Holy Spirit is breath. That's what this word spirit means. Can blow it into flame. (laughs) That's the message here really, except for a few people he laid hands on and they were walking again and healed again and everything changed. You see, I think this is what John is getting at in his gospel. Years and years later, he was here too. Years later, in John chapter 1, he starts off his gospel with these words in beginning at verse 9 in John chapter 1. The true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came into the world uh, to that which was his own, but he did not rec- they did not receive him. So his world was, a, those who were his own would be his own people in Nazareth, but the world of his own would be us too, like people that, that he has made and placed on this planet. Yet to all who did receive him, he gave to those he, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. I love this word, right. You know, all the modern translations translate it right. It's the Greek word exousia, which is neither here nor there, but but it it means right. It's a good translation. King James, though, translates it with another good word, power or ability. The power. Another word for it is authority. Gives you the authority to become children of God. But probably one of the best translations that people ought to glom onto in our day and age, because we're talking about choice all the time, is that you could translate it this way. He gave the freedom of choice to become children of God. That's what the word means, as well as right. You know what that means? That means that you and I can't come to Jesus. We can't fan the flame unless he gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the open heart, unless the Holy Spirit says, okay, now, open up. It's from him. The faith is from him. It's not about twisting it up. It's about being open to the reception of that kind of faith. It comes from him. He gives the right. He gives the ability. He gives the freedom of choice because before we couldn't choose. The Apostle Paul himself, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans, rather, says clearly, he says, you know what? Before you were Christians, you couldn't receive Christ. It took the Holy Spirit changing and opening up your heart with the jaws of life, I guess, to pour it in, saying, okay. 
Now's the time. And if we received it, instead of just closing that back up, we have the freedom, the ability. You see, this really clarifies some things with regard to that old statement that says, you know, you know, I've heard, I've heard this from Christians who've been Christians a long time and fallen into the dangerous trap, the trap side of familiarity. Uh, I, I heard him say, well, you know, if, if Jesus was just here with me now, if he'd just answer my prayer, then I'd believe in him. If, if Jesus would just come and do this miracle, solve this problem, be here, I'd believe him for the rest of my life. To which Jesus would say, no, you wouldn't. Not unless I give you the faith, the right to do that. The right to be a person formerly known as child of the dark side and now known as the child of God. That's his deal. That's what he's offering us. You see, familiarity really does have that side of moving from um, death in our sin or death in our over-familiarity to the proof of life. And the way that begins to bloom and blossom, and it needs to happen more than just, you know, if we want to keep that passion alive, it needs to happen more than just once. It needs to happen regularly, daily. It's not like it's yippy-skippy, oh, I'm over, I'm out of control in love with Jesus every day, you know? That's not possible for human beings. I mean, if you don't believe that, get married. I mean, you just can't all the time that way, but you do love, and it goes deeper and deeper. You see, it's like, familiarity can be the soil that is growing love, where love puts down its roots in it, right? The deep stuff. That's what marriage is over time. That's what life with Jesus is over time. That's what friendship is over time. Honoring and respect. You begin to honor him more. He's just like, well, the more I get to know Jesus, the more he's like, I, I, I'm just blown away. We're honoring and respect and worshiping him. Worship becomes not a thing you have to do. It becomes something that, like, man, I can hardly get there. Wait to get there. That trust over a lifetime. You begin to trust deeper and deeper, and you know, you begin to realize at a certain point, there's nothing really that can happen that's going to keep me down. I'm not saying that bad stuff won't happen to me, sickness, illness, trouble in the world. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that it's not going to pull me down because I'm headed up, and that's where I'm going to keep going. And that is the kind of possibility when we let ourselves become deeper and deeper into Jesus, familiar in that way, that everything changes. I'm going to call a band out here. And uh, as they come out, I just want to read for you one more verse. Um, Because it's sort of ironic that the most beautiful statement of this passionate relationship with Christ, in spite of what's swirling on around us, that kind of life and that kind of fire in the midst of whatever life is, the most beautiful statement of that comes from the guy that we, we dump the most jokes on in sermons. It comes from the guy who's speaking into Mark's ear before he writes the gospel of Mark. It's where Mark gets his information. It's Peter. And in his first letter, he's writing to people who by that time were seriously under persecution. He's nearly to the point where he's going to be executed himself, crucified upside down of all things. And he makes a statement right up front early in his first letter to these Christians to to talk to them about their buoyancy, that the more they get to know Jesus, the more they're rising above all the crud that's happening. Look what he says. Here's why. Verse 8 of chapter 1. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You know, a little later in the same book, Peter says, you have the promises and the truth about Jesus made more sure than the people, than us people who walked with him when we were there in that day. In other words, it's, it's simpler to believe in him now than when we were looking at him face to face. Why? Because he's just too familiar, too close. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with the inexpressible glorious joy. There's the spark. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you know that's what salvation is? It's forgiveness of sins. These people didn't need their sins forgiven. They needed to be transformed day by day by day by day. It's called sanctification. That's salvation too. Salvation from this world, salvation of life, showing you that this is not your home. So familiarity does not need to breed contempt. It's possible in the hands of the Holy Spirit, it can breed vibrant, passionate, new life in Jesus again, no matter where your situation, no matter who you are, whether you've accepted him or not, whether you accepted him a long time ago or not. Let me pray for us. Together we can pray. If you need to talk to him, you just ignore what I'm saying. And you talk to him. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've taught us today from your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for being here. Thank you for being there in that time, and thank you for being here right now. And Lord, I just pray that in our church family, we would not become so familiar in a way that causes us to do human patterns on you in our relationship with you, but that we would be open to the change within us in the Holy Spirit that gives us the freedom of choice gives us the power to overcome those things that pull us down in sort of those earthy ways and to realize the wonder and the sacredness and the gift, the life-giving, daily life-giving gift that is a relationship with you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for showing us that, for leading us through that. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you in this time together. And I pray that our church family would be lifted up into that kind of passionate life, that spark that just changes everything and causes us to rise above whatever we're experiencing at the moment. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.